Welcome to Thrivers, nonprofit leadership for the next normal. I am your host, Tucker Wanamaker, the CEO of Thrive Impact. Our mission is to solve nonprofit leader burnout and to really right some of the injustices that are happening against nonprofit leaders. Burnout is the enemy of creating positive change. And we want to connect you with impactful, mission-driven leaders and ideas so that you can learn to thrive in today's nonprofit landscape. And today I am joined by a special guest, a guest that uh, I've just recently met. And uh, we had a couple, we had a conversation uh, even just before this uh, recording. Um, that was, I, I loved hearing it, Nisha. Uh, I loved hearing that there's things stirring right now in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, that in the wholeness of who you are as a nonprofit leader, there's much stirring. So let me do a brief intro. I know you gave us a bio and it's, I actually love it. I love your bio. Um, this is Nisha Anand. She is an Indian American activist, mom of two teenagers. And as I just learned, one going off to college and a boundary busting, I love that, it's so good. <laughs> boundary busting, busting national leader for social and racial justice. Uh, once you're you're a grassroots activist that was arrested, is that right? You were arrested in Burma about a dozen times, and yes, about a dozen and, times, yeah, in the military dictatorship of Burma. Also, that's true. Oh my gosh! And you are the CEO of Dream.org, which uh, is a essentially where you're guiding a team of storytellers, organizers, and policy experts working on some of society's toughest problems to create a better future for all of us. So Nisha, it is a really delight to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, and as, as we were uh, talking just before, you know, we were originally going to be talking about fundraising, which may be, that may come up, that may come up, um, you know, but then you really got into some of the, um, I don't know if it's too strong, but maybe it is strong to say some of the, maybe it is some of the injustice that maybe you're feeling as uh, in your role as a as a woman, as an Indian uh, American activist leader in nonprofits. Um, and then we also talked a little bit about your approach from a dream.org perspective and how do you do this radically inclusive type of approach? And at the same time, in a sense, kind of what you said, be taken seriously for what you do. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, I feel like a lot of what you were sharing are many pains and, and issues that nonprofit leaders just like you are dealing with. So I'm curious kind of where you're at. What are you thinking? Uh, what yeah. are some of the pains that you're dealing with right now that you're noticing um, are, that other nonprofit leaders may be dealing with as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, some of it isn't new. Some of it's always been there. Right now, when I was thinking about it, I didn't get into nonprofits to like make money and be this huge, successful, right. <laughs> you know, celebrity, right? I got into nonprofit because I've just always been that kid that is passionate about injustice, fixing the world, fighting for people who've been left out and left behind. It's part of my story. That's why I've done it. My career was always going to be in the world of advocacy, activism, social justice, social change. And Yes, and nonprofits. And there's something, there's this dichotomy of growing up that way. And, you know, I was a grassroots activist on the streets, like you said, getting arrested dozens of times. There's something about that outsider agitator role. And now in middle age, being the leader, the CEO, being the person where, you know, I'm the person in charge, I'm the one with the power. There's a 
there's a dichotomy there that's sometimes really hard to hmm. make sense of where I feel like I'm the outsider fighting the power and at my own organization as a leader, I'm running a staff where I am the power. Couple that with the fact, mm. you know, being a first generation um, Indian American, uh, growing up in the South and all of the other identities that I carry with me, um, sometimes it's a bit confusing and leading in that is also confusing. Hmm. I was just thinking of that, that there's this bit of a dichotomy and leadership even though I can manage during these times, I know how to manage and be a good manager leading when you feel like I just want to be the activist and saying, this sucks, this is unjust, <laughs> but realizing you actually have to be the person that says, and this is the way forward. Uh, sometimes that that's my, um, oh, poor me complaint mm. right now. Like sometimes sure. that doesn't feel fair and that's hard. Um, yeah. That's one of the things running through my head. The other thing, that I was thinking about that's probably more present and new for leaders in this moment is leading through uncertainty at mm. this time. I became CEO in 2019 and I thought in 2019, I had my little Bambi legs. I was learning to walk. I, you know, made a big stand. Hey, as CEO, I'm going to make these changes. And, um, it worked and we slowly got in a groove and then 2020 starts and I say, all right, this year is all going to be all about, and I had a plan of what 2020 would look like. Three months into 2020, me <laughs> dun, dun, and dun. every other non, every other CEO across every company and every sector had no roadmap for how to lead. Yeah. Coming out, I mean, we learned a lot. Baptism by fire, we learned a lot. But now the uncertainty is still there. I think the world feels uncertain because we had our whole entire worlds change overnight. So there's still this like trigger response that's within all of the people we manage, all of the outside factors, all of that uncertainty is still there. And there are some outside uncertainty we have no control of, just the economy. And that's where the fundraising piece comes into it. We're looking at a prolonged re recession. Foundations yeah. are going to retract more because of how they set up their giving. We're going to have a little bit more of that in the future, not less. Um, we're not sure. We're still kind of dancing around the idea. Is there a recession? Inflation hasn't dropped as much as we wanted it to. We are about to be on the brink of another election where the amount of chaos that that might create for us is there. So that outside uncertainty is there and the inside uncertainty is also there. So that's the other piece where I'm feeling like I would love to talk with other nonprofit CEOs. The inside uncertainty, part of that is we all are going through different parts of a mental health crisis, whatever it may look like for each and every one of us after living through the last five years on this planet. Um, but there's also just getting to, you know, figuring out the hybrid situation is still uncertain, how we maintain connection, um, how we lead with the mission first, when sometimes you're, you're not in the mission as much as we were pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's the other big theme is leading through uncertainty the pandemic, I think we did great. I want to congratulate every other leader that listens to your podcast. Like, yay, you, you made it through. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. But there's no end. There's still this, mm -hmm. this thing. And that's, I think, where I'm, where I'm feeling a little frustrated and figuring out how do we react? How do we respond? How do we mm -hmm. keep our staff um, motivated through this? Mm -hmm. I feel like mm -hmm. I used up all my tricks over the last few years. Yeah, yeah. You know, you were hitting on kind of the the moment in time, both in terms of the you were speaking to uncertainty. And I a lot of times I'll see that as like the speed of change is happening at such an exponential rate that it's hard to know 
like we think we got it and then it changes, right? In a sense, uncertainty. I remember listening to a, uh, watching a video with some fancy tech people about chat GPT and they use the words double exponential when they were referring to the speed of change. I was like, <laughs> I was like, can something go double exponential? I don't, right. exponential isn't it just exponential? Um, <laughs> and so to your point, there's a lot of uncertainty and you're also hitting on such an important point. Like it, it's almost like we're in this perfect storm of challenge for nonprofit leaders specifically you know, to your point, recession, uh, potential recession. Um, we have some of the COVID funding that has dried up, of course, too. There's no more, there's no PPP loans anymore. Um, you know, you're hitting on inflation. Uh, we also have some of the effects, I think, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, some of the effects from the great resignation, mm -hmm. um, right, of staffing being tougher now. You know, I mean, when we say our mission of solving nonprofit leader burnout, even to people who don't even understand nonprofits all that well, they're like, oh yeah. It's like culturally people think that's the thing, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm sure that did not bode very well for the great resignation type right. of approach. And then we also have one thing you, you, you didn't mention, uh, but one thing I was just noticing is, um, although you actually kind of did mention this, particularly with, uh, you know, a new election cycle, you know, but, um, you know, the Surgeon General just came out with a report you know, I think it was a couple months ago around the epidemic of loneliness in our country. Yes. Right. Yeah. And you know that it's worse for you. Loneliness is worse for you, for us as humans than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, I think is what the analogy that I gave. Well, who is at the, who is at the forefront and in the trenches and in proximity of, of helping to alleviate those problems, the problems that come from that, the mental health problems, the violence that comes from that, all, all of that. Well, it's, for the most part is nonprofit leaders like you. Right? right. And so it's this like resources are going down and demands are going up amidst yeah. massive uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really hard. Right. And it's the, it wasn't just the PPP loans during the pandemic because the stock market went, I mean, there was money flowing in 2020 that we couldn't have predicted. So I saw a lot mm. of nonprofits grow and there was a stark downturn. So there's also, you're still trying to meet the same need you were meeting before. The need's increasing and the money is getting smaller. And that's really hard. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, I resonate with all of that. Well, and as you're hitting on this, you know, you, uh, I love where you were sharing this sort of, interesting coexistence of fighting the power and yet are the power. And I'm curious from your, your approach to leadership. And I don't want to say this from the role that you have, although that's part of it, but when you're an activist or, um, when you're, when you're trying to create change, uh, or even just with your own, you know, I think you have two kids, right. With your, <laughs> with your own two teenagers, like we believe that leadership is an active influence. Mm -hmm. not a role per se. It's in that we cannot not have influence. Right. Right. Um, and I'm curious in this particular scenario or, or in this day and age right now where you're noticing this coexistence, what is, what is shifting in your leadership that you're realizing? Like what is, uh, this is going to be a deeper question, but what is dying and what is needing to die in your leadership and, and what is seeking to be born of sorts? Mm. Because of the time is calling question. it out of you. 
Yeah, that is a great question. I actually, um, wow. Um, what a good question. I believe that I got to where I am because I'm deeply empathetic and because I relate to the whole ecosystem of social change. I feel like I've been a part of, of each of the piece that's necessary to create progress, whether it's um, being in government, being on the streets, being and on the streets like activist, um, yeah. that I, being in direct service, being in advocacy, I've seen all the pieces of it. So I can relate really well to a lot of my staff. I think that's helped me be a good leader. I think understanding what motivates people has been a good leader. But I think that one of the things that I have to, and it's funny because I, th I think it's dying, but I also think about as leaders, we have access to a whole suite of ways of being. And it's not necessarily that this piece of me needs to die. I just tend to overuse it. And I need to know when to use <laughs> sure. it at the right time. And knowing which tool I'm going to take out of the pieces of who I am and everything I've learned along the way, I tend to over rely on the empathizing and heart piece. And mm. it makes it hard for me sometimes to make the hard decision. So the piece of me, and when I know what the hard decision is, that is a piece I've been struggling with for a while. And I definitely, I've had plenty of practice. I've made a few very hard decisions recently. Um, mm. It's not that I don't know how. It's just knowing I don't have to put it away all the time, um, but I need to put it away some of the time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because my regular, what I believe is necessary is that love is at the essence of everything we do for social change. So it's funny to hear myself mm. saying it out loud. I do believe leading with love helps, but sometimes leading with love means being clear. And that's where I get confused. That's what's wrong is that sometimes doing the thing that legal or HR wants me to do might feel cold and against everything I want to do. But in fact, it's a, it is a piece of love. I'm doing it out of love for the organization, love for all the people in it. I think balancing that, how do you balance love with mm. legal? Um, that's a fine art. So I think that if you ask my staff, however, what they would want to die, I think that um, it's a similar piece where they know that if I listen to different people, I can easily be swayed and take in a bunch of other perspectives. I think mm. that's how they would describe it is that, um, and that's because I am very consensus based. I want to hear from everybody. But sometimes when I hear from everybody, I take on their feelings more. So I think if you ask my other leaders on the team, They'd say Nisha needs to sometimes not listen to everyone else's opinions hmm. and hmm. stick with her, you know. So that's that's a similar way of describing the same thing. Sometimes I have to be more dictatorial and authoritarian than I want. And I need to kill the piece of me that says that means it's not love when hmm. I do it that way. Hmm. Hmm. Great question. I've well, never thought about that before, so... Well, if if uh, I know that Sarah, our chief of impact, will be listening to this, she's usually my co-host, and uh, the statement that she has so graciously and gratefully have brought forth, which is a Brene Brown quote, which is clear is kind. Clear is and kind. Un unclear yeah. is unkind. And yeah. she has been such so helpful interna internally uh, and externally too, but internally within our organization, you know, where she just asks clarifying questions on a regular basis. She says, what is it that you want? You know, like she brings forward um, and helps us to lean into 
clarity, which is kind, right? Clarity yeah. is kindness. Um, you know, but with this, I, I want to dig in with you a little bit, Nisha, on when you were saying around, you can easily be swayed. And, and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about around the fighting the power versus I am the power. And I'm curious about the word power itself in that if you are a collaborative leader, this is kind of what I'm, I'm noticing. If you're, you, you want to build consensus and as you know, I've, I listened to your Ted talk, you know, from, I think that came in, what was that February, 2020, like just before all the things right. went down, um, you know, and speaking to bringing people across the aisle. And I'm curious of, is there like, um, a deeper leaning into that. We use the words, literally it's one of our core values is co-creation. Mm -hmm. And, and is there a, is it a, when you were talking about, I am the power or the decisions, is that, and I'm honestly curious what you think about this. Is that, is that what that side of it needs, what needs to die or needs to go by the wayside? Meaning that the belief of what power is in the first place oh, or, absolutely. or is it a leaning into, you know, when you were saying, and I, your energy changed a little bit when you're like, I need to be a little more dictatorial. And, and I'm, I'm just curious about that. We're talking so much in nonprofit leadership about the next normal of when we talk about things like co-creation, it's, it's really about power. And yeah. is it the consolidation of power or is it the diffusion of power? What is the new operating system around the diffusion of power, if that's where we want to go? And so I just want to dig in with that, with you on that yeah. a little bit more of what you're noticing. I love that. Um, I love thinking about that. There's a lot of old words and phrases and ways of being because of how I was brought up and how I was raised that are always going to be there. And certainly when I'm faced with power, I go back to these old ways of thinking about it. Am I outside the power or do I have the power? And underneath that, you can hear, and I think what you heard is this feeling of, well, power is a bad thing. And I don't believe that anymore. I really don't. And so your question, like, how do we think of co-creation and what power that has? Um, I've been thinking that definitely when I was young and very much on the outside, I saw myself as powerless and the powerful could do something and therefore they needed to change. I've realized that I mean, through the years, the change that I've been able to make is when I have the power to make it. And in fact, we have this phrase, people power, right? Power to the people, mm. all of these yeah. phrases yeah. we use because we want that power to be in different hands than it is. And so I've been thinking a little bit about the way we think about redistribution of wealth, which obviously people think is, you know, they have feelings about it. I've been thinking about redistribution of power that power in itself isn't bad. There are a lot of people I would love to share power with for them to have power. I'd give over complete yeah. power. Like Michelle Obama could run my family. I'd be happy for her to take over <laughs> my family. Right? Yeah, There's right. certain people I would give all the power to. And that isn't a bad thing. I think co-creating can be a really beautiful thing. And for me, it is. It's like a power re redistribution proposition. And so what we try to do here is make sure at the table, when we're crafting solutions, we bring all different types of representatives of power. We make sure we have political power and people in the DC kind of corner of the world and financial yeah. power and Wall Street and, you know, the creatives, what makes up that whole Hollywood 
influencer creative side, that's a type of power. And then just proximity. I'm out here in the Bay Area. Technology and what Silicon mm -hmm. Valley represents, that technological power, they can be at the table. And if they're all together, if they're co-creating a solution together and you put us, dream.org and our dream people power right in the middle, we believe amazing things can happen. That's our unlikely allies um, idea. Yeah. And at my best, I remember I'm, I'm all those things too. Inside of me, I have all of those things. I do have this experience of being first generation, um, young woman being raised in the South, um, all of that. And I have being a leader and mm -hmm. I have having a master's degree. Like I have all of these multiple complexities inside of me, which have a different relationship to power. So at my best, when I'm a leader, when I talk about being deeply empathetic, it's because I can relate to the different types of power I think that everyone holds and brings within them. So I'm really glad you highlighted that because I think it's a check mark. There's this way of thinking in which feels today. I yeah. was feeling this tear yeah, between yeah. it, but on my better days, you know, mm. I am, I'm all of the things and it actually works better that way. Mm. Yeah. Well, and what I, what I appreciate about what you're sharing is that you're an honest learner on the journey, <laughs> quite literally, right? I mean, uh, uh, how many times are you noticing? I mean, literally with our, I was mentioning our core value, one of our core values of co-creation and, and man, I, I, many times have I noticed as a, as a CEO, wow, I didn't co-create there. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, what was I doing? I just kind of bulldozed or I just kind of didn't tell people and I just did my own thing, which is sometimes what I can do. And realizing that it's okay. We're just, we're, we're learning into our own values many times. Yeah. And you know, it's an ideal, but there's also the real, which is, I don't even know that I'm, I'm, I'm the fish who doesn't know it's wet, you know, half the time, <laughs> you know, well, and that's where, you know, Nisha, you were getting, you're getting more into around, uh, you know, when you were talking about your, your, if what your staff would say needs to die and that, you know, Nisha can easily be swayed and, you know, when it comes to decisions and I'm curious how this, this approach translates into decisions. Um, when you, when you, when you've done collaborative type of work, um, when you've been on, you know, maybe your more, most effective leadership self, uh, right. how do how do you see decisions are made in their most effective way? I mean, is it, is it a one person makes a decision or, what I'm curious, like, what have you noticed in your own experience as a nonprofit leader, how decisions in a sort of a next normal way of, of decision-making is, is done? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm also a persuader as captain of the debate team. When I know what I want, I will go around and organize every single person here and persuade them. <laughs> so they're on board and I'll get it done. Um, so I know how to persuade, but I also think because our approach and our theory of change is that we all have blind spots. And the reason why we'll work with Republicans on legislation is they will point out our blind spots, just like we will point out theirs. And that is a beautiful thing. So for me, decision-making, I have to know what my blind spots are before I make the decision. And mm -hmm. just that question a lot of leaders ask, like, what am I not seeing? What piece am I missing? That's really important. So I want that information before I make the decision, just like all of my staff, I want them to have that before they push policy. 
it's it's consistent. Mm -hmm. So there's a piece of me being collaborative and wanting to know everyone's opinion that is consistent. That's not going to change. I think one of the problems is when um when you know I think I know exactly what I want to do, and then a new piece of information comes in. How do you analyze that and make the change? And if you want to make the change when a new piece of information comes in, that's hard. One of the things I think is best right now is me as CEO, not making all the decisions, letting go Mm -hmm. of most of the decisions. Mm -hmm. I think that's been one of the biggest um, (laughs) upskills for me. And we actually borrowed this from Amazon. The one, have you, has anyone talked to you about the two-way door decisions or one-way door decisions? No. We borrowed this. It's one of the things they do at Amazon that if all decisions are they try to put them into, is it a one-way door decision or like a saloon door that goes back and forth? A one-way door decision is one that you walk through that door. It would be really hard to walk it back. The door doesn't swing the other direction. So like if we decide we're going to shift our entire database over to a new database that would take hours and hours and money and time and that, that's really a one-way door decision. It would be very hard to walk it back after. You could, it'd Mm -hmm. be very hard. Versus a two-way door decision, which is like, are we going to put out the social media post? Well, if it doesn't work, don't put it out next time or take it down. Right. That's easy to fix. So anything that's a two-way door decision, don't be involved. Let people decide and fix hmm. and iterate. And if you're a nonprofit that's an experimental nonprofit that wants to take risks and want to play big, it means you have an evaluation mechanism, which means any two-way door decisions, you can walk right back and change them. That bad decisions are not consequential if you can walk them back and change them easily. Bad decisions are learning experiences. So that's been one that's helped me really let go. And I made a one-way door, two-way door decision type. And if it's a one-way door, come talk to me or come talk to your manager or the person above you. Other than that, I really want to empower my leaders, not just to make all the two-way door decisions themselves, but all of the people under them to make the two-way door decisions. Mm. We need to learn from making bad decisions. And, um, we practice that with our kids, right? Um, <laughs> if I could make all the decisions for them, trust me, I would. But they learn yeah. nothing that way. And I think that's Truth. the same thing with staff. So, yeah, letting go has been a really big mm. piece so, of making the right decisions. Yeah. Well, and that's where I'm curious what kind of um, – I love that you're hitting on learning. Uh, learning for us is um, – Peter Singe is one of our teachers. Um, I, I've never met him, but uh, his work has been – really helpful for us, um, around being a learning organization. And, and, uh, one of the things in being learning organizations, you know, in fact, he even said in a video I was watching of his from quite a while ago that the prevailing system of management, which was the industrial age form consolidating of power system of management is destroying people because it's about the consolidation of control, not about learning. Right. And, and I love that you're hitting on this point around learning. And I'm curious, you know, when you were just saying like, you know, when you have, you have the information and then you make a call or y'all make a call as a group and then you get new information, it's like, okay, I'm curious, what kind of rhythms of learning does you, you and your team have, or what are you trying to get into um, that allow for you to be agile? Right. Cause I think to your point, as you were hitting on the uncertainty, right, that speed of change, uncertainty. We're going to get new information all the time now. 
which means that maybe again, going back to the operating system, maybe our operating system and how we function needs to adjust. And I'm curious, what are some of those rhythms of learning that you uh, have done or are wanting to do more of, or that you've seen have been innovative with other organizations yeah. that have been helpful for you to be able to be agile? Yeah. I think it's important to have a North star. I think it is very important to think 10, 20, 30 years down the road, what does success look like? But you can't have a 20-year plan. I don't even think you can have a three-year plan Seriously. in this day and age. Even one year is a lot for people. So what I think is have that North Star and have the right metrics of how you're going to measure you're getting towards that. The metrics are the most we can plan about. How we make that impact, how we get to that metric, that should be a constant change and iteration. The problem is our funding sources don't reward that. So where <laughs> I've applied for a grant, let's say to, um, it's easy to think about with this direct service. Like I applied for a grant, I have to feed, you know, 600 people. That's what I have to do. That what's, that's what's the money for. But what if I find out that I can feed a lot more if I stop for six months, do this one thing, then all of a sudden I'll be feeding 2000 instead of that 600. Yeah. The foundations don't let you change that. Like it's not rewarded that innovation and mm. that need to pivot. And so us and at dream.org, we've had to say, that is what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you what my vision is at scale. And then I need you to fund me to find out how to get to that scale, which mm. means you can't hold me to any specific deliverables this year. The only thing you can hold me to is that I'm going to learn how to meet that metric. Um, and I'm going to keep iterating because the world changes too fast. If I say I'm going to pass 10 bills in these 10 states, anything could happen. And I have to take these three states out, add those three states in, whatever. Technology, if I need a bunch of funding for a bunch of writers, well, guess what? AI, I don't need the money for that anymore, but it's already mm. my budget, right? Like we have to embrace change. And I think all of our funding sources have to embrace it too. So for me, the constant evaluation is, are we meeting our metric? Could we meet it in a better way? And to drive towards that biggest North Star in scale. And it means you have to say bye to some of the programs, which are the most beautiful ones sometimes and heart-centered. And uh, you know, our example was we have been doing this model of training um, for technological jobs in big tech companies. We wanted to get more black kids trained and into these jobs of the future. And for about five years, we worked on the model of how to do it. And we found a model that worked and we have big clients. We worked with Target, we worked with HubSpot and we were finding the talent, hmm. training them in a culturally appropriate way. They were getting these jobs, changing their incomes from where they were getting 30,000 to 80,000 overnight, right? Very successful. It takes so much money and so much labor that it is a very expensive program and we're getting 20 people at a time into jobs. Now I want more folks to have those good, clean, green, high paying jobs, but I can't put that much effort to get 20 people through. Mm. So we've had to stop and evaluate how can we do this and get more than 20 people through and not sacrifice how it's done. We really had to pause because it's, it was way too intense. There's gotta be a better way. So mm figuring that out took a lot of time and we had to have our funders come along, but we're like, you don't want us to just get 20 people jobs. You want us to get 2000 people jobs. Like, like, yeah. Mm. So that was a hard learning for us. And it's not easy to lead your staff through that change, especially when it's like, 
but I just got 20 kids jobs. I want to get 20 yeah. more. Um, well, what, what this speaks to me, Nisha, is that you and your team are mission driven because you're looking at data, right? You're, you're here for a mission and not to just feel good, <laughs> although that's part of it, right? We do want to feel connected to our work. Um, but I appreciate that you're bringing in objective understanding in a sense of, no, we, we, it, this is too expensive based upon, you know, I'm sure a variety of factors for the return on that impact. Yeah. Right. And, and so therefore, how might we, I love how you're using these, like, so then how, how might we, if we, if this is important, how might we, and I'm curious, how did those conversations go? Like you're, you're telling, you were talking about funders earlier and some, it sounds like you, that you work with don't, don't get iteration probably. Right. <laughs> right. They want real blatant, just hardcore deliverables. Right. And then some, and then you've had, it sounds like, have you had to have those hard conversations with some of those funders to be able to get them to the side of it more being iterative? And, and then when you were saying invite our funders into the process, which also means showing the good and the bad or the, yeah. the, you know, the, the win some, you learn some, you know, kind of yeah. idea, like here's what we're, here's where we're winning and here's where we're learning, you know, of sorts. Yeah. How do you, how have you had those conversations that help them kind of lean into your operating system? You know, we have those conversations the exact same way we have our conversations with our Republican partners, with legislators on the Hill. We be authentically ourselves um, first and foremost. And that is to me the most important thing that I've learned through years of being a fundraiser for nonprofits and being the CEO is the only way, like, go straight to the point, be authentically, say it exactly how it is. And that would be the lesson I'd give to any new fundraiser out there is like, you're going to have all of these feelings about money, all of these things about, I can't talk to the people with money. I have to give them what they want. I have to, all of that has to go away. You just have to mm. say, here's what I see. Here's what I know. Here's what I want to do. And, um, that those are the most successful fundraisers in all of my history. Those are the people who've actually done the best because they're not playing games. They're just completely honest. And some funders aren't going to be a around for that. That's okay. They have a board to report to as well. They have to put out there, here's what we did. And they are driving to certain numbers too. So, you know, I'm an organizer at heart. Like I told you, I'm a persuader. So I'm going to tell them, here's what it is. Here's where the next thing is. Yeah. And, um, that's what leadership is. To lead means to go first. So sometimes you have to be the first one that tells them, this is how we're going to do it now. We're not going to do it the old way. And if you're serious about leadership, you have to be willing to have that conversation and um, lose funding. You yeah. Know? I'm, like that is have an you had that? I like that three, like what I see, what I know, and what I want to do. Um, yeah. Because isn't that that fear? Like if, if we put ourselves out there, then we might lose funding or we might not get whatever funding may potentially be there. It's a little bit of FOMO, right? right. Uh, of what could be. And now I'm giving myself fear because I think I could have an opportunity if I end up not being my authentic self. So I'm, I'm curious, like right? you've lost but funding, you've gotten what? funding. You know, fundraising is a losing game. It is a sport with very low batting average, right? Like <laughs> fundraising is... I mean, it really is like you are a great fundraiser if 50% of the people you ask say yes, right? If you send out an email, like they want you to get like a 0.5% return rate. That's like 
you ask a thousand people and one person says yes, like that is winning. So already you're going to lose. You start approaching foundations, you're not going to get even 50% of the ones you approach. So you're going to lose anyway. If you're mm -hmm. a fundraiser, you have to get okay with no. You have to know most of the time you're going to get no. You're always chasing yeses. Like if you're a fundraiser, you are a particular type of masochist. So already you're going to get no's. <laughs> why don't you get no's from the ones that are going to, why don't you just be authentically yourself? You're going to get the same amount of yeses, right? It, mm. That's part of the FOMO. It's like, sure, I might not get this one. You're going to get one from the better match mm -hmm. if you just are yourself instead of contorting yourself into these other things you think funders want you to be. Um, so I think, yeah. I've been okay with the no for a long time. In this economy, it's a little bit harder because there are not as many other options to go after. That being said, we are always going to just sell our vision. And um, some things are slower to catch on. And uh, we're just going to keep sticking with it if it's the right thing. For me lately, that's been around criminal justice reform that we've been really, really successful on reform and legislation that makes changes inside the prison, you know, with conditions of confinement or when people are coming home or in probation and parole, we've been really successful with our model. But I want to fundamentally transform this entire corrupt system, and that's mm. not going to do it. So if I'm looking at how do I disrupt a very, very inefficient, poor return, poorly run system of incarceration that makes people worse instead of making, makes people better, we got to take some big swings mm -hmm. and there are very few funders that are out there with me. Right. Um, mm. But we're trying. And so that's when I think to lead means to go first. I'm not going to back down and just keep pitching. Oh, we'll just keep passing laws. Of course we'll keep doing that. But I want you to fund us to experiment and think of what's the big interruption that's going to disrupt the entire way that system works. Mm -hmm. We need someone to do that. Um, mm. So it might be a little more risky, but I know that there's some funders out there that like that risk. So that's, that's who I want to look for. Well, and Nisha, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is a slight curveball here in terms of the conversation, but when you're hitting on being your authentic self, sharing of that, putting that out there, even when, like what you were just talking about, criminal justice reform, um, you know, where there's not a lot of funders there yet. And at some point, maybe that changes, maybe that doesn't. I don't know, right? I mean, yeah. you, you probably don't know either, right? That's part of the uncertainty. How do you stay in that space of authenticity to yourself? To yourself. We like to say uh, from a dear mentor of ours, if you, if you want to lead well in the world, the first place you need to lead well is within yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you're saying being your authentic self, that when you're able to do that, it sounds like the right types of funders and other partners come your way. Um, and the ones that aren't the right fit for you probably don't then, right? Yeah. Um, how do you stay in that space? What are, what, are, what, are, what are your practices as an individual person yeah. that help you to stay in that space of, of being authentic to yourself? Yeah. Look, I think there's a piece of that that's from where I sit and at this point in my career, that our organization is pretty big, that we're not dependent on any one funding source to stay alive. I definitely have been in a nonprofit where you will have a month where you're like, cash flow, we might not make it. 
So I mm-hmm. think there's a bit of privilege that I'm not in that, oh my gosh, how am I going to you know, pay salaries next month position? We have a good deal of runway. So there's probably a little privilege in which I say, just be authentic. The right funder will come. Um, so I want to, you know, say that for sure, folks that are sure. in the, yeah. this might not apply to you. I remember being in that position and it's like, anyone that likes me, I'm going to figure out how to, how to pitch. So I remember that as well. <laughs> um, nice. but for me in those moments, I've learned how to have that hard conversation with staff. The problem is if you say no to funding, that's not right. That doesn't allow you to do what you're doing. You might be talking about people losing a job that's the hard piece of leadership that sometimes being authentic to the mission might have an actual impact on someone's salary. It is hard. Like I said, at the top of this, we got into this job because we have big hearts. We got into the nonprofit sector because we care about people and justice. Mm -hmm. So making a decision like that is not easy. Those are Mm -hmm. the ones where you get the little um, me going back and forth and talking to people about all the different perspectives because they are hard. Cause I don't like that the right business decision that might be authentic for the mission might not be the right one for a certain person. Mm-hmm. That's hard. That is hard. And so mm. it takes, for me, it takes a lot of reflection, all of the things you've heard mission first and, um, to make the right decision. And then I think being clear is kind those decisions you, like we said earlier, explaining them with the compassion, but with the clarity is, um, is important going forward. Um, it's hard. Well, and when you were saying reflection too, this is where I want to, I'm, I'm curious of your, your individual practices that you do, right? You said reflection as an example, when you're in those moments or even before those moments, you know, the practices, that's why I use that word practices of like, you know, just, it just becomes a part of your being, right? This is the, the way you, it's your own operating system in a sense. Yeah. What are those practical things that you do that do help you, you know, yeah. that do help um, you stay in that space of authenticity? Yeah. You know, I am not a meditative person and so I don't have a meditation practice. The closest I come to that deep reflection is I have a journal in the morning and the morning journal I've used all the different planners and the gratitude journals. I am a crafty person. So I made my own and it has all of the things I've liked from different journals. And I think the most, so it has just forms for me to fill out. I'm grateful for these three things. These are the most important things I have to do today. Here's how I'm going to show up for, you know, my whatever. But my favorite question that I answer each morning is who needs me at my best today? Ooh, Great question. That one helps a lot because I have my calendar in front of me. I'm an organized person. I have to answer who needs me at my best. And I know what is most consequential just that day. And I can say, oh, you know, who really needs me is my, you know, it it could be my kid. It could be that my daughter needs me at my best. I've got to be the best super mom friend today. But it also could be like my head of fundraising needs me to show up like very clear and like one you can be anyone for one day, anyone for one hour. And that question, I've carried it in every journal I've made. I like have it here. I was going to show you my journal. I know our audience can't see it, but it literally okay. is put a like, picture. yeah, it literally is like, I put my little face on the front of it, you know, so I could have it. And then each day has like, you know, all my different questions that I've made for myself. Oh, that is so cool. Um, 
and that is, that's my reflection practice. It also, you know, talks about the end of the day, what worked today. I need it to be structured more than the free meditation. So if anyone else needs structure, you can reach out to me for my little uh, crafty page. It helps me to reflect that way. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can put, uh, maybe we can put some of that in the show notes. We usually put, you know, cause people always talk about resources, which is part of the point. Oh, um, totally. Yeah. If you have like a PDF or something, or maybe even yeah. a picture, we can put it in the show notes. That'd be great. Definitely. I will send it to you. And the other one that you had me do too, is just taking a breath before and after meetings. The biggest thing for me was having my assistant make sure I have five or 10 minutes after each meeting where I can jot down what just happened and reflect. So that is also in my journal. That reflection piece is so important or I forget we are running a million miles a minute. So um, knowing what was important after every meeting is huge. Mm. And this is where like the reason why I wanted to ask you about your your practices, whatever they were, and I'm grateful you brought in what they are, is those are things that you now do every day. And I'm curious because you've been able to be in this space of asking yourself the question, who needs me at my best today, as an example, what's been made possible for yourself and for those around you because of these practices? Yeah. You know, everyone says to show gratitude to your staff, cheerlead, shout them out. I actually have, you know, one where it says, what are you, you know, in the grateful, and then I get to write to them every day and say how I appreciated them. That is a very practical thing that's opened up that I can, like, I'm, I give myself that homework every single day, appreciate somebody. But what it's opened up for me having that reflective practice is that we actually started off this conversation to talk about leading in uncertainty. Yeah. That's probably the one moment in the day I feel most certain and grounded because I am able Mm. to look at it as a whole and think about what's most important that day that's probably the most certainty I have. So your question, what did that open up for me? By doing that, by committing to that, by making that commitment, it's allowed me to have just that one breath outside of the chaos to be in control and um, and lead and show up in the way that I want to show up. Hmm. And then I think that probably has ripple effects across your staff with your, your, with your two kids. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, you know, on the good days, you know, yeah. every parent is always asking the question, am I just screwing them up? Am I just screwing them up? Yeah. I have four kids. Um, so oh, I, wow. I totally, I totally feel what you're talking about. And are you, are you screwing them up? <laughs> oh yeah. Half the time, probably. <laughs> yeah. Somebody once told me, uh, when I was way well before I was, a, I was a dad, I was 19, I think. It, it, they were like, you know what? Your kids are all going to have father wounds. So you might as well just get used to it. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, so I kind of like lowered my own barrier a little bit, which was helpful to helpful. So, but I, I think we're, we have some good parenting stuff that we do some, from time to time. Yeah. Well, I'm hey, pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I know the ways in which, you know, I've messed him up now. You know, my son is 18 going off to college. I can kind of see. Yeah the things that happened, but, um, he's a great kid. So that's all I can say is that, uh, yeah, I gave him some scars, but man, he's turned out great. Yeah. I love that. Well, Hey, just to close, uh, you've already given some really great practical steps and tips. Um, is there anything else, any other key bits that if you were talking to other nonprofit leaders or if 
you you wanted this advice for yourself as a nonprofit leader. Is there anything else that you want to close in terms of words of wisdom or practical steps for other leaders that are out there? One thing we glossed over was when you were talking about loneliness. And I know this wasn't mm. exactly what you were saying, but it is very lonely to be the leader. And it was created that way, right? When you're CEO, there are certain things you can't talk to everyone else about and it's lonely. And so the advice that's, and this is just for today, the thing sticking with me is like, let's not do this alone. We can be together. And for me, the number one thing that's helping helped me is my group of other CEOs that mm. I'm a part of that has a lot of deep confidence and sharing and a structured way to share and be with each other. That has gotten me through years of hard things. And so I'd say, don't be lonely. Find your folks that are going through it and let's do this together. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on our podcast and just for having a real conversation about what you're going through, some of your practical steps. Uh, I feel like we, we hit, I see the through line of all of them. And yet, cause they all, they all hit whether everything from fundraising to power dynamics the personal practices to, I love how you ended of like, we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to do this alone. So don't, don't be lonely. And if you're, if you're lonely, then get out of that as call quick me. as you can. <laughs> yeah, call, <laughs> the shit. call me, call, call me. us. We, yeah, we'll figure this out. So, well, thank you so much for being on here. Thanks for the great work that you do out there. Um, and for being a present and empathetic and collaborative leader. Cause I think we, the world needs more, uh, leaders like you and you're, my my belief of nonprofit leaders is that you're the leaders of leaders. Mm. You're the leaders of leaders because you and all the other nonprofit leaders that are out there, we face the most, um, some of the toughest leadership conditions that are yeah. in our country. And, uh, and yet we're still showing up. And so I appreciate you showing up and still showing up and then showing up again. Well, so, thank um, you. And thank you for all that you do. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show.